Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined, as always, by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is economist Patrick Chovanek. He's what used to be called in Washington a China hand, and he's been lauded by lots of prestigious newspapers as an expert on the topic. He is an adjunct professor at Columbia, where he teaches courses on U.S.-China relations. And if you're not following him on Twitter, you need to do that right away. So welcome, one and all. Um, This week, under cover of COVID, uh, China is getting quite aggressive. Um, at the um, yeah, a few little straws in the wind, at the National People's Congress, which is their rubber stamp legislature, um, the prime minister left out one word from the annual message about seeking reunification with Taiwan. That word was peaceful. There have been border skirmishes along the border of China and India, but most relevant to our discussion this morning is that there is a new law that was passed regarding security, and it will bring Hong Kong completely under Beijing's control, or that is what is being alleged. Um, So, um, Patrick, um, this new law will um, make it illegal to um, disrespect the Chinese national anthem, among other things. Uh, that would be a crime. It would. Uh, it has broadly worded bans on sedition, subversion, secession, terrorism, and treason. Um, is is this um, is this the end of an independent or quasi independent Hong Kong? So China has leaned on Hong Kong over the years um, in ways that have concerned people. But a lot of people really see this as a game changer that essentially, you know, China promised that there would be one country, but two systems that Hong Kong would maintain a very different system. A lot of countries around the world treat Hong Kong differently and apart from China as a result. Um, And, a lot of people think that this is essentially the, the end or at least the beginning of the end of, of that two systems and that, that the people in Beijing have lost patience uh, and at whatever cost um, are determined to exercise more immediate and direct control over Hong Kong. And this could be a real tragedy because obviously Hong Kong is a not only is it a beacon for relative freedom in, in, in Asia, but but it it um, is also an important regional financial center. And so the question that's raised is what kind of impact that that will have on, on Hong Kong status. Um, you lived in China for a while. Um, did you spend any time in Hong Kong? I lived five years in Hong Kong and I lived five years in Beijing. So I definitely feel this, uh, very, uh, very closely. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what's, what's happening in Hong Kong is a, is a real tragedy. And I think the question is what other countries can and should do, um, you know, to have an impact on the situation. It's not clear in the sense that this is almost like, you know, Hungary in 1956, it wasn't like the United States was going to go to war with the Soviet Union, but, but it didn't want to remain silent either. Um, 
when the Soviet Union came in and crushed the freedom fighters there. So. Right. So there was a statement, uh, Bill Galston, from uh, the United States, Australia, Great Britain, and Canada uh, decrying um, this planned law. Um, do you think that there's a an opportunity here for the U.S. to do something beyond just condemning it? Uh, well, the the Secretary of State, Mike, Mike Pompeo, uh, has always, already said, and I'm not sure how binding this is, uh, that this will have the effect of changing Hong Kong's status as an autonomous area uh, subject, which puts it under a more favorable trade regime uh, than it would have if, if it were officially a part of China. If we make good on that, and Patrick would know the ins and outs of this much better than I do, then clearly that would be uh, that would be a way of applying pressure on China. I doubt very much that it would work. Uh, I think the Chinese are absolutely determined for reasons of regime stability to see this new uh, demarche through to the end. But uh, we do we do have some instruments that we could use to up the pressure on China if we choose to to use them aggressively. Linda, some people say, look, um, if we bring Hong Kong under the tariff regime that we've already imposed on mainland China, we will just hurt the Hong Kong people even more than they're being hurt. What do you make of that argument? Well, first of all, I think the the problem is the the uh, Trump uh, quiver, the only arrows that it seems to have in it uh, to respond to any kind of uh, crisis having to do with China is to invoke more tariffs. And, you know, as we've discussed many times on this show, tariffs not only might hurt the people in Hong Kong, they also uh, are ultimately paid not by the government, but by consumers uh, in the United States in terms of of uh, added prices that we pay for the goods. I mean, this is a real quandary. And I think, you know, one of the I'm a huge admirer of Margaret Thatcher. She is one of my great heroes. But one of the low points, I think, in uh, her tenure uh, in the United Kingdom uh, was the 1997 agreement that was reached. That was uh, that was reached, and part of that had to do, really, with her uh, sort of low bargaining status. And uh, I think Deng Xiaoping got the best uh, of Lady Thatcher, um, Prime Minister Thatcher at the time, and. You know, one of the things that if if we had a different kind of president that I think could have an impact, I think we ought to open our doors to um, anybody from Hong Kong who wants to immigrate here. And that's not just my idea, uh, a fellow uh, who's part of a listserv uh, group that I'm on suggested that would be uh, one of the greatest punishments would be to let uh uh, the Hong Kong uh, residents who wanted to immigrate to the United States to come here. But it, it's difficult. I mean, Trump doesn't have the leadership capability to pull together, despite, you know, having a letter signed with a handful of world leaders. You know, there needs to be coordinated, concerted response to this. And I don't see one coming. Damon, um, 
the agreement that was reached in 1997, I remember watching the film, the filming of the ceremony at the time where the Union Jack was lowered for the last time and the Chinese flag lifted and uh, my heart was sinking with that Union Jack. Um, but, uh, but they promised the Chinese, uh, what we used to call the red Chinese, promised at the time that uh, there would be one, uh, two, one country, two systems, and that um, Hong Kong's special status would be uh, respected, including impartial courts. They would have free speech. They would be governed under the same laws that they had ha enjoyed under British rule until 2047. Um, so, uh, that didn't, that didn't work out. Um, uh, what do you make of the argument that, um, that part of our problem here is that we are not in a position because we're so deeply in debt as a nation, we aren't in a position to exact costs on other nations economically. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't exactly know what we can really do. And the problem is, as others have mentioned, that, that China knows as well as everybody else that we're not going to go to war over this. So, uh, they feel strongly that they want control over Hong Kong in the short term to prevent another round of massive protests to happen. But in the longer term, because China has has changed somewhat since the time the agreement was reached. That was the heyday, certainly in the West, of of the the thought that uh, there's an inevitable uh, sort of evolution of societies in the direction of liberal democracy, and especially this will be hastened if you open markets, and that this would happen in China over time. And of course, one of the things all of us in the West are coming to grips with in the present is. The, the realization that that, especially with regard to, to China, most pressingly, might not be true. And so the idea that there is this kind of looming unification of the two systems, even if technically they're supposed to stay uh, distinct, uh, coming down the pike in a few decades uh, has a very different um, kind of ominous feel to it now than it did. And certainly under uh, Xi, it has become uh, the, the moves on his part uh, to kind of clamp down and impose a, a form of totalitarian governance uh, uh, makes it even more ominous. And so he knows we're not going to go to war. Heck, we didn't go to war when he, he crushed the Tiananmen protests, uh, when the Chinese crushed the Tiananmen protests uh, 30 years ago. So clearly we're not going to do it now, least of all under Trump. Um, and so, you know, we could do something like uh, others have suggested, you know, say anyone who wants to immigrate uh, could do it. I, I don't know. I don't really see Trump, uh, you know, pursuing a policy that involves uh, letting in lots of foreigners. Um, that would well, also after all, it's not an s-hole country. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true from his point of view. But the other problem is that would then leave what's left of Hong Kong uh, sort of immiserated uh, with some of its, you know, really terrible brain drain. Uh, and and like, what would that be really better for Hong Kong in the long run? I'm not certain about that either. So I, I I'm sort of at a loss um, and uh, pretty depressed about it. Yeah. Patrick, um, 
one, so everybody has talked about how we're not going to go to war uh, to uh, rescue Hong Kong. Um, but the situation with Taiwan is slightly different. Um, we have had a, an understanding with Taiwan going way back that we kind of would go to war to protect their independence. And the Taiwan government, by the way, has issued an open invitation to everybody from Hong Kong saying they would be given citizenship. Um, but what what would be different if the if uh, China decided to move against Taiwan immediately after clamping down on Hong Kong? Do you think anything would be different or not? Taiwan is watching this very carefully because actually, if you go back to the origins of the expression "one country, two systems," it originally applied to you know, China kind of offering that to Taiwan. Uh, what they weren't interested, um, but that was you know kind of a, a the the umbrella of reunification. Um, or a concept of reunification. So the Taiwanese definitely are very interested in what happens to Hong Kong, how one country, two systems plays out. I, on, on Hong Kong, let me say for a moment that um, a lot of the consequences for China cracking down in Hong Kong are going to be self-inflicted. That is, they're killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. You know, China did not adopt one country, two systems simply because uh, the rest of the world made them. Uh, they did it because uh, Hong Kong played a very important and special role and gave China access to a lot of things that it didn't have uh, on its own. And they may think that they can do without that. Uh, I'm not so sure that they can. I think I think they're shooting themselves in the foot. Can you can you elaborate on that for just a minute? Because um, I looked up some of these statistics, and in 1993. Hong Kong's economy was 25% uh, the size of, of mainland China's. But in 2018, uh, it was only 2.7%. Um, so, you know, obviously mainland China has grown tremendously in those intervening years. Um, so, but, but what is it that Hong Kong does that you think the Chinese can't do themselves? So China, so Hong Kong has declined as a manufacturing center, cheap manufacturing center. Um, and I think that that's part of what you see there, in addition to the fact that you know, China has just, just gotten its economic act together in a way that it didn't have back, back uh, when that comparison was made. Uh, but Hong Kong still serves as a very important outlet for China in terms of access to uh, funding and capital. Um, it is a platform for a lot of companies that do business, not just in, in China, but throughout the region. Um, it, it attracts human capital uh, that provides services that, in a way that are simply not available throughout the rest of China. And it also serves as um, a place where a lot of people have their contracts done. So, for instance, if you're investing in China, in mainland China, you may have your uh, investment contract drawn up so that it says any disputes will be resolved in a Hong Kong court, um, because the view is that Hong Kong. Uh, the Hong Kong courts are more reliable and less biased and less prone to political influence than the courts in mainland China. And you don't want to subject yourself to that. So, um, so you know, there's a lot that China potentially gives up uh, if it chases away a lot of talent and a lot of money away from Hong Kong. Um, now, the United States could accelerate that by... Uh, revoking its recognition of Hong Kong as a special area 
for instance, you know, the ability to travel uh, to Hong Kong without a visa uh, and vice versa, the, the um, uh, flow of money, the, the tariff treatment. I mean, Hong Kong is treated as a separate entity than China. And, it to, and if it was treated as the rest of China, uh, it would be less attractive in many ways for people to do business there. And that's where you actually hear the a bit American business community in Hong Kong really worried about what the United States will do. But let me sound like a bit of a hawk here. Um, I've been accused of not being hawkish enough recently, but but on this issue, I would say, you know, the the game changer here is China's actions. It's not, you know, if there is U.S. policy of treating Hong Kong as a separate entity is predicated on the idea that there really are two systems. And if there aren't two systems, it's not the United States is not intervening or interfering by simply saying we're not going to recognize that there are two systems when there aren't two systems. Now, one question is whether we could do that piecemeal and say, well, we rec- we're going we're gonna to treat it separately in one regard, but not in another regard, or whether it's just all or nothing. But, uh, but that, I mean, I, I don't think that we should participate in the fiction that Hong Kong is somehow special if the Chinese have decided to treat it like the rest of China. Hmm. Um, okay, one last question. I'd just be interested in your observations, having lived on the mainland and uh, in Hong Kong. I mean, so for you know, sixty years, um, the mainlanders have been, and probably longer, uh, under an authoritarian communist regime, um, and uh, the Hong Kong Chinese, very much the same ethnically and so forth. But they've been living under a free regime. Um, is there a really noticeable difference uh, when you meet with people, when you when you get to know them, when you form friendships? I mean, is there a difference in the character of the people? There is. I mean, there's a distinct Hong Kong identity, and it's important to realize that China is a very large country and that actually there are regional differences that people in China are very conscious of, even within mainland China, that we would find, you know, baffling. Um but, um, you know, Beijing people, if you wanted to ask me what, Be- you know, Beijing people think of Shanghai people and vice, vice versa, you know, they have very strong opinions. Um, but but uh, in Hong Kong, you know, what, what has happened is that um, because of this crackdown, in many ways, Beijing has lost a generation of young Hong Kongers who may have seen their future lie with China, but now are very wary of that. Um, and, you know, one way that they actually stifle, you know, one, one of the big fears when, when there was protest in Hong Kong, in Beijing, was that this could spread into the mainland. Um, but they prevented that from happening by basically drawing on a lot of these cultural differences between uh, Hong Kong and and mainland people. Mainland people tend to see Hong Kong people as sort of pampered and look down on them. Uh, Hong Kong people tend to see um, mainland people as sort of country cousins uh, and not as sophisticated. And so Beijing was very successfully able to say, oh, look at these pampered Hong Kong people. You know, they're unpatriotic. They're influenced by foreigners. Uh, it's got nothing to do with your grievances back possible grievances back in the mainland. And a lot of people in, in the mainland, maybe not hearing, you know, the other side, uh, accepted that. And so you didn't see the protests spread. And you actually saw a lot of animosity towards the protests in Hong Kong. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Look, uh, you know, w- one of the more frightening aspects of the world we're living in is that um, is that unlike the the USSR, which was scary enough, but USSR was a pretty incompetent regime <laughs> in many ways. We now know, um, though they were good at building weapons and they were certainly threatening. But the Chinese are are a lot more. Um, a lot more ruthlessly efficient about it. And uh, I would even say in many cases, cleverer um, in the way that they uh, repress the human spirit. So, um, so it's a, it's a really uh, sad thing um, and uh, appreciate your, your insights on it. All right, let's move to our would be authoritarian president um, <laughs> who, if in his, in his dreams, you know, he would be able to say that's treason and you should go to jail kind of the way Xi Jinping can do it. But um, obviously he can't, but, uh, but he has those, he has those tendencies. And this week um, he so badly um, abused the Twitter platform by spreading lies and slanders of the most vile and disgusting kind, uh, that Twitter, under pressure, has decided to um, fact-check him, at least to some degree. Um, but uh, but I feel I must, since I've been very, very critical of, um, of conservatives for not standing up to Trump, I will note that this week we had some pretty strong statements from uh, outlets that are pretty pro-Trump, like um, the New York Post, uh, which um, wrote this, um, that this week the president decided to suggest that a TV morning host committed murder. That is a depressing sentence to type. And then it went on to say, trust us, you did not look like the bigger man, obviously addressing the president. Washington Examiner, also a Trump, mostly Trump-friendly outlet, um, described what Trump did this week as vile and incompatible with leadership. Um, and um, the Wall Street Journal said that this, uh, these attacks on uh, Joe Scarborough were ugly even for him. Uh, so that is just worth noting. Um, Damon, the uh, do you think the, the, the Twitter executives made the right call or the wrong one on how to handle this? I, I, I think it's kind of a mess. I mean, they, the, the first tweet they told that they chose to flag for possible inaccuracy was one where Trump was going off about how if we do vote by mail, it'll lead to fraud and so forth. And they linked to uh, an article about how vote by mail can work okay. I, I just, that was a weird one to choose because it was a prediction about the future and it's impossible to, to like verify the truth or falsehood about a prediction. I, I think it's just a mess. They can't really do it. And that, that is the problem with. I mean, Twitter is like the world's largest digital billboard and people just post stuff up there. And even if you're the president, it's never clear who has authorized anyone to uh, to act as a kind of verifiable truth check for it. And so all it ends up doing or will end up doing is providing another target for Trump to attack authorities and elites 
And, and so, you know, more tweets from him. And he did it immediately the next day, attacking Twitter, saying, we'll shut it down if they keep doing this kind of thing and turning it, of course, into a partisan issue that this is an attack on conservatives. So I, I, I you know, you would, if they were going to do it, they probably should have done it about the Scarborough related tweets, which are, which are really based on, no factual holding whatsoever. I don't think that would have worked very well either, but it would have been better than flagging a, a, a kind of a kind of stupid anti-male voting prediction tweet. So I don't know. I think it's a big mess and the kind of mess that Trump thrives on, frankly. So I don't I don't see it going uh, very well, anywhere very important. Bill, the um Part of the problem here is that Twitter has never subjected Trump to its own standards in the past, right? They have rules of the road that its uh, customers are expected to abide by, and those include not engaging in slander or bullying or various other things on their platform, but they've never held Trump to it um, until now. So um, is it that, you know, is the solution maybe just for them to... uh, just apply their standards to everybody, including the president of the United States? I'm a hawk on this, Mona. Uh, I think that the regime that has grown up around social media, since they were essentially liberated from all restraint in the notorious Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act back in, back in 1996, has allowed a wild west to develop that is harmful to our democracy. And it certainly degrades it. Uh, And I am not necessarily advocating censorship, but it seems to me that if if someone who uses a platform is free to speak on it, then the people who own and operate the platform are also free to return speech with speech. Uh, and, uh, and I don't think the issue in the case of, of the Trump tweet was taking it down. It was adding a kind of a warning notice to it, <laughs> a fact check. Uh, I am totally fine with that. And I wish that Twitter applied its own standards, not only to the president, but everybody else. I mean, I don't think Twitter's made much of an effort, even with people who are much less powerful than the president and much more eager and able to retaliate. So, so, and I can, I can assure you as a political matter that if these sites don't begin holding themselves to higher standards, including in some cases their own standards, then there will be successful legislative efforts to do it for them. And I'm not in favor of that, but I'm in favor of it if they don't do it themselves. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Linda, one of the um, one of the things the president has said he's going to do, he said he would do it today. I don't know if it's happened yet, but that he's going to sign an executive order which would seek to channel complaints about political bias to the Federal Trade Commission, which would be encouraged to probe whether tech companies' content moderation policies are in keeping with their pledges of neutrality. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, some Republicans are touting, Josh Hawley um, of Missouri. Uh, 
you know, did, did, what could go, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, well, we do have that little bothersome First Amendment to the Constitution and political speech, the idea that you're somehow going to regulate this. Um, I mean, I really, what I don't understand is why Twitter doesn't just ban the president. I mean, I guess, you know, from a practical standpoint, he has 80 million followers. And so it would, you know, would cause less traffic to their site. But, uh, you know, the idea that the president of the United States has an absolute right to use a private company to promote uh, really libelous um, accusations against uh, someone is is just astonishing to me. And I think, you know, maybe one of the only ways that it's going to be solved is uh, through litigation. And actually, there was a very good article today in the opinion section by Peter Shuck claiming that um, Trump's, um, you know, horrifying lies about Lori Klasutis, I'm not sure how you say her name, the young woman who uh, hit her head and died uh, and who uh, Trump is accused of being a murder victim. Her husband uh, has asked Twitter to take it, uh, to take that tweet down, and they've been unwilling to do so. But maybe he can sue President Trump for causing uh, actual damage. I mean, there is an actual tort involved here. He has caused him pain and suffering. Emotional dis- intentional infliction of emotional Emotion- distress is a that, tort. Yes, that's right. So, um, um, so one, you know, one wonders if that isn't going to be the, um, you know, what ends up. Uh, making some changes. But I, I, you know, I, I, I guess one of the reasons that I think I focus less on these things is I just decided um, quite consciously not to be part of that world. I mean, I have a Twitter account. I don't use it very much. I have a Facebook account. I basically never use it. Uh, I just social media, uh, there's nothing social about it. It just seems to be something that promotes antisocial behavior. So uh, I don't think the I don't think the president's executive order uh, would stand up um, in in court. And I hope that something that might stand up is some action against him for making these absolutely libelous um, accusations. Patrick, they say hard cases make bad law, and um, it's it's uh, certainly you can make the case that by um, behaving out of all bounds of civilized conduct, um, the president is constantly putting strain on our institutions because um, he pushes to a you know things where people search for a legal response because the the informal social res- social uh, uh, strictures have not functioned. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it sounds like, uh, Twitter has been forced into a position where they're now going to be in a, in a difficult, um, position, no matter which way they go. Um, do you think, uh, that there is a, uh, do you think that this president is, is pushing, is, is applying pressure to the institutions in a way that, um, that is damaging? Well, that, that's been his whole MO from the very beginning. Um, and we burst through guardrail after guardrail. Um, the, the unique problem that Twitter is in is that if it actually enforced its rules against President Trump, they'd probably kick him off. But then, you know, President Trump has been a goldmine for Twitter. And it's probably the reason why a lot of people are on it. 
Um, you know, that's the dirty little secret here um, is that while they may say that they abhor a lot of the, you know, traffic on the site, um, it's the constant outrage that generates um, tweets. Right. And, and, and generates business and generates eyeballs. And, you know, I love to think that my history tweets and travel tweets and things like that are why people come. But that's why I'm there, Patrick. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, and, and so, uh, so, you know, it, it's, it creates a unique situation where one could actually say that Trump made Twitter, or at least made Twitter a lot of what it is today. And yet, you know, he's their most troublesome. All right, let's um, move on to, um, you know, it's interesting. We're not discussing COVID this week, um, but uh, the, because basically things are terrible and just like they were last week. Um, we passed 100,000 uh, deaths, but um, and we're opening up without any real plans to do so safely and in any sort of organized or um, predictable way. Okay, but uh, we do need to discuss a couple of things that happened um, in in two different cities. First of all, uh, there was a, an episode in Central Park involving uh, a bird watcher and a woman with a dog. Maybe we'll have time to get to that. I wrote a column about that this week. But uh, but the other story is is a tragic and disgusting one. Um, this is the story of George Floyd, um, who was uh, apparently the police were called because he was attempting to pass a bad check uh, or counterfeiting of some sort, and um, the police showed up and uh, they say he was resisting arrest. Anyway, a film has surfaced um, that shows him down on the ground next to the squad car, a crowd of people. He's, he's begging for the policeman to get his knee off his neck. The policeman is kneeling on the guy's neck and he's saying, I can't breathe just like Eric Garner. And then um, the, uh, the, the people standing around are begging the police officers to let the man breathe and to, you know, they say you're killing him and they don't they don't move and they kept that knee on the neck for 8 or 10 minutes and uh the man stopped moving at a certain point um and uh he was pronounced dead now there have been protests breaking out in Memphis and major ones including fires and looting and so forth in Minneapolis um traffic was stopped in Los Angeles um but uh but Bill I want to come to you first because this story it strikes me as different in, in, in a really shocking way for any other story that we have seen about police brutality, because in most instances, there is a story after the fact, somebody was shot. It, you know, turns out that maybe he didn't have a gun and the police thought he had a gun or, you know, it happened very fast or they got the wrong guy. Or in the case of Baltimore, they, they, put somebody in a van and he was handcuffed and they didn't put him, they didn't restrain him in the van. They knocked him around and he died later in a hospital. But, and, and then we're left later to piece together what probably happened in this case. Um, it is right there um, that th these police officers were knowingly snuffing out this man's life, or at least taking the risk that, that he would die. It's right there in front of you. It's one of the more shocking things I've ever seen. Um, what do you, what do you want to, um, to say about this? <laughs> well, uh, I wish it had never happened, of course, but 
it did. And not only that, I don't think it's a one-off. Uh, I think there's a lot of this stuff that we don't hear about. Uh, and I think we have reached a kind of breaking point on this issue. I really do. Uh, you know, I am trying to put myself in the shoes of African-American families uh, who, through no fault of their own, uh, have young sons who are subjected to insulting and intrusive treatment on a very regular basis. Uh, it is it is really driving a wedge, not only between the police and the African-American community, but between African-Americans and the rest of society. In my view, 99% of the police on the beat are good and responsible people who are trying to do the best thing in very trying circumstances. The problem is that 1% are really bad apples and the system is very bad at getting rid of bad apples. Uh, there are many very tightly drafted union contracts that give uh, police all manner of protection against the normal course of justice. And you have prosecutors who, for reasons I can understand, are very reluctant to bring these cases against a police, a local police department on whose cooperation they depend absolutely for the effective administration of criminal justice. And so there is no recourse and it just goes on and on and on. I just think we have to admit as a country that what we've done up to now on this issue has not worked and is serving to alienate a very substantial portion of our population, which, ha which has all sorts of legitimate additional grievances in addition to this one. Uh, and I, you know, forget about a national conversation. I think it's time to figure out a framework that will give police departments, the people who are responsible for managing them, the leeway to get rid of the bad apples and to make it clear to the rest of the, the, the good apples that this is a cost of doing business. Linda, you used to work for a union. Um, and, uh, you know, is this, is this a situation in which the unions are really um, to blame here? I mean, you know, like in, in the, with teachers' unions, you have the same or similar problem. You can't get rid of the bad apples. And, um, and uh, but in, in that case, you know, you can you can blight a student's life. In this case, you can take people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, uh, Bill raises a very interesting point. Uh, to what degree does the police officers union uh, intervene to protect even the bad apples? And I have no doubt that that is probably the case. But here you have a situation where the Minneapolis Police Department is headed by an African-American Um it's not clear whether the, the individual with his uh, knee on the neck uh, of uh, the man who, who died, uh, if he was in fact guilty of excessive use of force. I know at least one of the other people involved uh, who were standing around and witnessing it had been accused of excessive use of force and the, uh, force, and the department had to uh, have a settlement uh, with one of uh, the people accused there. But um, the other 
The other problem is, and I think this is something that as a conservative, as someone who has fought against racial quotas and who's um, always, you know, argued that um, we have made enormous progress in race relations in the United States, I think that's being eroded. And I think that it is fair to say that racism is on the ascendancy. And I think one of the tragic things about um, the social isolation and what all of us are going through now is the kind of um, psychological problems that people have get exacerbated. And, you know, I just think that when you see the tapes, and by the way, Mona, I don't know if you saw, but this morning there is a second tape out uh, this man was not resisting arrest at all. He peaceably got out of his car. He was not resisting. He then went down on the ground as he was instructed to do. And that's when, you know, the officer put his knee on his neck. So, so you know, there is there is no excuse for this. But we have a sickness. I mean, there wouldn't country. have been anyway. But anyway, yeah, but, right, but this right. is, you know, right. right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a Rodney King issue where Rodney yeah. King was, in fact, resisting and he was uh, on PCP and um, you know, other things. This, this is, an, it looks to me like an, an open and shut case of, of um, I mean, almost intentional murder. I mean, you can't put your knee on the neck of somebody um, and they're, you know, gasping for breath. Um, and of course, none of the other police officers intervene. But there is something deeply troubling about um, racial attitudes and the hatred. And then, by the way, the reaction of many in the African-American community um, was not just to go out and peaceably protest. Most of the protesters were doing that. But then, of course, you have the bad apples there who start torching uh, department stores and, and small businesses. Uh, and looting the, the target. And then yeah. looting. Yeah. And then looting. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that is kind of a uh, a racial reaction as well. So I think acknowledging that we have a real race problem in this country and it's getting worse. And I, you know, don't want to blame everything on Donald Trump, but he certainly has not helped matters. Yeah. I mean, he, he did say that he was sorry for this awful tragedy or some such thing, but you know, <laughs> was nothing like the level of outrage that he can summon on other matters. Um, Damon. Um, so, uh, do you think the um, yeah? I'm just I'm struck by um, the change in people like Linda and me um, because of these cell phone videos. Um, you know, in the past, if there had not been a video, I have to confess, I might not have had the same reaction. I might have thought, well, maybe he was resisting arrest. You know, I would have been more inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to the police. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of Americans would. Um, but since you you brought up uh, the the significance of the of the video, I, I actually, if it's all right, I'd like to bring up that other case that you mentioned yeah. from Central Park, because that led to a very interesting exchange that I had with um, New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie, who was mm -hmm. uh, on Twitter the other day about this. Um, 
the, the, it, very briefly for any listeners who aren't aware of what happened there, there was uh, there's a, the Bramble in Central Park is an area where uh, it's a little wooded and uh, a woman apparently had her dog. I think it's dog, called the Ramble. The Ramble, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, had her dog off of uh, the leash when she shouldn't have. That made her, I guess, if it's true, a scoff law, uh, disobeying that law. Uh, or regulation in the park. And uh, she was a, a white woman uh, named Amy Cooper. And then uh, an African-American man uh, also named Cooper, Christian Cooper, no relation. Um, apparently, now this part was not captured on video, so we don't know exactly what happened, but he he approached her and basically reprimanded her in some verbal way that she should really have her dog on the leash. She reacted badly to this, and then he began filming her as she threatened to call the police on him for not leaving her alone. Uh, she did call the police on the video. Wait, can I interject real yeah. quick? Yes. What she said, what, because he said, you know, the, before then it had all been about the dog, right? Right. And leash the dog, you know, and I'm going to give your dog a treat and you won't like it, or I'm going to do something you won't like, which is what she claims she was frightened by. Um, she, he said, if you won't do, if you're not going to um, leash your dog. In any event, she then says, I'm going, while he's filming her, she says, I'm going to call the police and tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Yeah. And, and then she did call and said, I think in, 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 in a kind of mock dramatic way, making it sound like she was even more agitated than she really was. I, I'm being attacked by an African American man, she says on the phone once or twice. And then she hangs up and is like, are you happy? And he says, yeah, thanks a lot. And then turns off the video. Now, over the next 24 hours, this went viral. Uh, the woman came in for a lot of uh, online abuse. She first ended up, uh, this shows how quickly things happen these days. Uh, within the first few hours, her employer announced that they were going to conduct an investigation of what happened. And within a couple of hours, they announced that they had fired her. Uh, so she was then uh, laid off or fired from her job for this event. And I just tweeted uh, a list of things about this that seemed crazy. The first two were about her total overreaction, her emphasis on African-American, trying to call the cops for this kind of trivial interaction. And then also that she got fired so quickly and it was a kind of mob thing online. And Jamel Bowie of the Times responded, he's African-American, and he responded very passionately saying she was trying to get him murdered. To which I responded, I don't really think that you can say that. And this then continued a few hours later where I tweeted something else vaguely related to this about mobs online. And he responded, you still don't seem to care that she was trying to get him killed by calling the cops. And I tried to make the case that I really don't think there's evidence of that. She clearly wanted to get, you know, probably scare him as much as she was apparently scared by the interaction, wanted to ruin his day. But I don't believe that your average white uh, American thinks that calling the police on an African American man is an automatic death sentence. And it was very clear from this exchange that it ended in a kind of tense way with uh, Bowie 
that he genuinely makes that kind of inserts that minor premise into the claim that if you do do that to an African-American man, you say to the cops, an African-American man is assaulting me or attacking me as a white person, that you are very seriously raising the risk that they're going to end up dead when the cops show up. Now, that, I think, is itself a very distressing and upsetting glimpse into what it feels like to be a black man in America in 2020. He's a smart guy. He's to my left by several clicks. I disagree with him a lot, but he's a very smart, well-educated guy, knows the history of race in America. And that is how he feels, that it's essentially calling the cops is basically like calling up a lynch mob. Um, in, in the pre, in the segregation South. So I, I'll just leave that there as a kind of cry of despair. <laughs> um, uh, because I don't, I, I don't really to, know what to say to it. I, I have to respond to that. I think that's nuts. I mean, look, there's way, way, way too much violence against, uh, African Americans. There's way too much harassment of African Americans. That's why I titled the piece that I wrote about the Central Park encounter. I called it Bird Watching While Black. Um, you know, there's way, way, way too much. But if, but if the police were really like a lynch mob and every time a white person phoned uh, the police about a black person, it involved death, then, then, you know, we would see, we would see dozens of these, of these every week rather than, you know, every now and then. I mean, it's just, I don't think that we live in that kind of a jungle, and I don't think that the police are that out of control. They, it, it is a huge problem, but it is not. Uh, well, well I, I don't either, which is, that's why I took the other side, and we, we ended the, the conversation in a, with a bit of kind of uh, uh, tension and sense of like, well, we're not going to convince each other of this one, but... It is, uh, you know, if that is a widely shared view in the African American community, it is not a good sign about the civic health of the country. Uh, I'll leave it at that. And Mona, could I just interject? I mean, that was exactly the point that I was making is that when racism increases, it doesn't, it isn't, uh, you know, like a seesaw that it goes up on one side and down on the other. What ends up happening is the kind of racism we're seeing white against black also increases racism of blacks against whites. And we begin to think in racial categories, we get, begin to think all blacks are criminals and then blacks, you know, end up more thinking all whites are going to lynch me. I mean, this is, this is why this is so incredibly toxic. It's not one-sided. It causes uh, a reaction on the other side as well. Right. Uh, Patrick, did you um, did you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, Mona, you know, you uh, invited me here to, to to some degree to give an international perspective, and I, I travel a lot outside the United States, and you know, what I'm hearing here is something that uh, I think it's really damaging the U.S. reputation around the world. Um, a lot of things that are going on right now, a lot of things that people will talk about is, is, is this sort of thing. And also, um, the, the gun violence that, you know, has gone down on average, but, but has spiked in terms of, of very visible incidents. Um, and, you know, back in the 1960s, the United States was very conscious of, 
a lot of leaders of the United States were very conscious that whatever its own moral imperative domestically, um, the civil rights movement um, and the violent reaction to it in the South um, really damaged the U.S. in terms of its reputation during the Cold War. And then mm-hmm. it was used by um, other countries to say, look at the United States. It's not so great. Um, yep. And they have no authority to lecture anybody. And now, you know, when we talk about Hong Kong and things like that, um, I think these issues are really weighing down on the ability of the United States to project um, moral commitment or a moral message on some of the issues that it cares about. True. All right. I want to get in one more topic before we turn to our final thoughts. And that is um, we had um, we have some pressure that's being placed on um, Joe Biden this week uh, to choose a female black running mate um, because this is thought to be necessary after the um, you ain't black gate uh, problem that we had last week. Um, so uh, Bill is, uh, is that the right advice? He, he needs to, he needs to uh, buck up his uh, African-American supporters by and reassure them. Well, actually, I thought that was the right, right advice before any of this occurred. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I do think uh, that uh, he should pay attention to two things. First of all, to the people and the group without whom he wouldn't have gotten close to being the nominee of his party. He owes his nomination to African-American leaders and African-American rank and file, who in part had a good impression of Biden, but in part uh, followed the advice of their leaders. Uh, And I do do think that failing to appoint an African-American after this sequence of events would be disappointing and to some extent demobilizing. Uh, the, se- the second point I'd make is that if you look at some of the crucial states that uh, Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, an important reason for her loss was the failure of African-American voters in cities like Detroit and Milwaukee to turn out. Uh, and so I, th- I think it would probably be good politics to go in that direction. And I've thought that and said that and written that uh, for weeks before these events ever occurred. I would be distressed if he picked Kamala Harris and then the interpretation placed on that was that he was doing penance for, you know, the you ain't black comment. That I think it's inevitable that that would be the interpretation. But um, Damon, let me run something by you that... Uh, comes from our friend Mike Murphy, um, former Republican uh, political consultant, smart guy, um, who said, you know, if Biden picks an African-American running mate, he's handing Trump an opportunity that he would not otherwise have. And it would go like this. Um, 
so Kamala Harris had come out in favor of uh, reparations, right? He he says Trump will do months of reparations, and then you know Harris will have to say whether she's for reparations still or whether Biden is, and then they'll have to iron that out, and there's going to have to be a response. And meanwhile, the the suburban vote is going to get turned off. What do you think of that analysis? Well, um, I I do think there's an extent to which we can get kind of tripped up in all kinds of spinning out of these kinds of scenarios, especially with Trump, where he's his all he does in politics is seek to exploit weaknesses in his opponent, and he has not he's not limited in doing that by the normal restraints of decent human being. So he'll, he'll find any weakness he can possibly find and exploit it. And I think if he, no matter who Biden chooses as a running mate, uh, there's going to be some dynamic of that in play. So I certainly wouldn't choose not to, to go with Kamala Harris for that reason. I don't exactly know how they'll handle the, uh, uh, the issue of her support for reparations during the, the primaries. But uh, clearly, I think, uh, you know, there any number of the people Biden might pick have said things that could end up being fodder on the stump or in a debate. Um, and my own view about whether he needs to pick an African-American, I mean, I don't like to think that he needs to. Uh, I certainly didn't, wouldn't have been in the position of saying that before his, his, we'll say, uh, act of misspeaking <laughs> a week ago. Um, I, I mean, I, I personally uh, like Amy Klobuchar and think that there are reasons why she would be a good choice. I didn't like that he hemmed himself in by having by declaring ahead of time he would pick a woman automatically, and the idea that now he has to pick an African-American woman seems kind of bizarre and a very bad comment on the the hold that identity politics and kind of uh, factional uh, uh, you know, the kind of the factional character of the Democratic Party and the need to kind of uh, to uh, you know hand out uh, gifts in return for support uh, I, I don't really like that very much but if he does uh, Kamala Harris would be certainly fine for me I just don't want him to pick Stacey Abrams and I made clear <laughs> that last week I think when we talked about her um, I, I really don't like the way she has uh, really kind of elbowed her way into contention when her record doesn't really justify it at all. So if he's going to go that route, I hope it's Harris. Mona, Linda, can there's I some... just interject yeah. briefly here? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, we're acting, we're acting as though this is something new. I mean, when I was when I was a boy uh, growing up, uh, and I I. I didn't live in New York, but I followed New York. I was a weird, weird boy. Uh, and uh, uh, I always noticed that the slate of Democrats included an Irishman, an Italian, a Jew, <laughs> uh, the occasional wasp thrown in for good measure. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I don't recall that people were calling that identity politics back then. It was simply a recognition that people in society are divided into different groups based on all sorts of things, including including ethnic and, and racial backgrounds, and that that by putting people on tickets 
uh, you were sending a signal. We know you're there. Uh, we know you have interests and concerns. We respect them. You're included. Uh, and I recognize that it's fashionable to bash identity politics. And I also recognize that there have been many excesses of identity politics, particularly on college campuses. But when it comes to the conduct of politics and the slating of candidates, this is as old as democracy, certainly as old as American democracy. Uh, Linda, he, he Bill makes a good point. He uh, does. He does. And it, well, go ahead. Go I ahead. was going to say, it, it, yeah, it, he's absolutely right. Ethnic politics uh, is as old as we, you know, had more than you know one ethnic group represented. It certainly goes back to the early 20th century, and we've seen it. And and I understand that. But there is one thing that all of us seem to be forgetting here, and that is that a vice president is the primary job of the vice president is to be ready to step into the role of president of the United States and commander in chief. And that is particularly relevant when you have a man in his late seventies who, uh, God willing, uh, if he is elected, will turn uh, 80 while in office. You want to have somebody there who could step in uh, should he die or should he decide not to run again? Uh, you know, the Democrats would like to have somebody who would be able to step up and, and run the second time. And I'm sorry, I don't think uh, Kamala Harris is ready to do that. I sure as heck don't think Stacey Abrams is. Uh, and even Val Demings, who uh, I think did a good job as one of the managers during uh, impeachment and who is from a state, Florida, which is an important one and will uh, perhaps be uh, in play in in 2020. Um, that's part of the craziness about limiting yourself only uh, to one sex. Uh, in in you know what which candidate you're going to now you're going to limit yourself further and have it not just one sex but one race. And you know if he is going to pick an African American. Um, I wish there were a way of doing it and considering some of the male contenders uh, who might be uh, better positioned. Uh, at least we've had some governors, Democrat governors uh, who are African-American, uh, mayors of big cities uh, who might have more executive experience. But I don't see, and you know, I'm sure Bill will disagree with me, but I don't see any of the three names that I mentioned as being ready to become commander in chief. Well, I mean, I briefly, I would just say uh, I'm no huge fan of Kamala Harris, but I do think that she she has a pretty impressive resume and probably rivaling uh, plenty of people who have been either vi vice presidents or presidents in the past. So I would not worry on on that count about her. Well, um, yeah, I, I just would like to say that um, there are some really great. You know, I would. I would say that one of the thing one of the things that unites the regulars on this show and the guests too I guess despite our differences some of which have been on display in this podcast uh is that we regard the replacement of the current occupant of the White House as vital to the defense and preservation of American democracy and at this point, and I don't think this is an irresponsible position, I'm in favor of Joe Biden picking 
the vice presidential candidate who gives him the best chance of winning, all things considered. I fully understand the importance of governing, but in these dire times, I think the old dictum, you can't govern if you don't win, is really dispositive. It certainly is for me. Yeah, look, I, you're right that we agree on that first principle, but I will just add this. Um, I, I I do not believe that the vice president ever really helps a a, uh, a candidate much at all. I mean, Lloyd Benson didn't do much for Dukakis, um, even though he was a, you know, by most people's lights, an excellent uh, statesman and all that. And, um, you know, I, I do think, though, that they can hurt. And, um, you know, this year when it's going, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that Biden has had a steady lead and that basically the, the, the cautious approach here, I'm going to make a pitch for the cautious approach. The cautious approach is to just be dull, be, be the de default Democrat, choose another default Democrat like Amy Klobuchar as your VP. And, um, that is a, a combination that the American people have signaled they are comfortable with. And, uh, you know, when you, when you allow other things to come into it, I don't know, I think it's riskier than going with a, a plain boring pick. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, my personal thing about Kamala Harris is that, well, I've said this many times, I, I, it's not that I don't think she could be president. I don't like the kind of president I think she would be. She seems to have learned all the wrong lessons from the Trump era, and she wants to be the liberal version of Trump, where she's going to rule by executive decree. And that's how she ran as, as a candidate. So I, I find her distressing um, in, that, in that sense. All right. Um, let us close that conversation for now. We may have cause to come back to it next week and uh, move to our final thoughts. Patrick, why don't you go first? My thought is, uh, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we talk a lot about China. We talk a lot about the, um, vice presidential pick, uh, and, and about, um, uh, coronavirus, but really, you know, we're in the worst economy that we've seen since the great depression. Um, there is a lot of hope that it will rebound, but there is also a lot of things that are happening right now. Um, companies declaring bankruptcy that suggests that it may not get back on track as quickly as we would like. And, you know, I, I took the view that the biggest thing that would impact the outcome of the election in November, uh, I took this view before coronavirus, when the economy seemed to be weakening a little bit, um, that it was the economy, uh, that when times are good, People sort of write off a lot of the stuff which otherwise might upset, be upsetting as, you know, so much nonsense and vote their pocketbook. And that when times are hard, they look around for somebody to blame. And I think Trump very much realizes this that uh, and, and why he's so pushing for uh, reopening wisely or not. Um, and uh, that people who watch the election should pay a lot of attention to what the prospect is for a recovery, because I think the discussion about the narrative of the economy and whether it's really recovered or whether it's still in the dumps by, you know, say September or October is going to have 
maybe a decisive impact on how people vote. Okay. Bill. My, my parting thought is also economic. Uh, the economists I've been reading and listening to in the past week uh, have really awakened me to a possibility that I think would be a big problem for the country if it comes to pass, namely that a substantial share of the jobs that have been lost during, during the pandemic will simply not come back. That changes in the way businesses uh, operate, plus changing patterns of consumer preference, will mean that of, for example, the 10 million plus restaurant jobs that existed prior uh, to the pandemic, uh, three, four, or even five million may simply have ceased to exist. We're going to be talking about a very large number of people uh, with unlimited willingness to work and, and advance themselves and their families, but limited skills. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, their unemployment and what to do about it. And the time to start planning for a different economy, I think, is now. Okay. Linda. Well, after all this very depressing news about the economy, <laughs> I have some good news to point to. Okay. Um, I have rarely said these words, but I actually approve of something that Donald Trump did today. Uh, today, he extended the deployment orders for the National Guard. I don't know how many of you have been following this story, but the National Guard uh, deployment from um, uh, for helping the states during the coronavirus uh, epidemic uh, was due to end on June 24th, and that was one day short of the period during which those who actually follow those orders would become eligible for uh, retirement benefits and uh, GI benefits, schooling benefits, uh, because if they had uh, gone beyond that uh, 90-day period, they would have been able to uh, begin to accumulate uh, credit towards those two benefits. And there was a lot of worry, not just that we would lose, that states would have to pick up uh, more of the cost for the deployment of the National Guard, who've done a terrific job, but also those guardsmen and women uh, would not be able to get these benefits well. Somebody got through to the president and he decided to extend those orders through August, which will help states, but it will also help those individual guards, uh, men and women. Okay. Damon. Uh, well, you know, you can never count me to follow up with something else positive. Um, <laughs> I'm actually uh, reading a book that I would recommend to listeners uh, okay. titled War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers uh, by Benjamin Teitelbaum. Um, you know, Bannon, Steve Bannon, um, is, uh, I'll say in quotes, an interesting fellow. Uh, he, he clearly is very ambitious, far beyond the American shores. He spent most of the last two years since he left the Trump administration trying to organize a kind of uh, far-right populist international um, uh, with a lot of ties in uh, Bolsonaro's government in Brazil and in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. 
And this is a book uh, by a, an author, Teitelbaum, who clearly knows what he's talking about. He's met Bannon many times, interviewed him as well as a lot of his associates. I fear that he maybe has gone a little native. Uh, you know, I guess the ethnography uh, always runs the risk of that. Um, mm -hmm. But he, it's a very informative uh, view of Bannon's ideas, what he believes, and what he's trying to achieve. And it is, it is uh, disturbing stuff, but stuff that listeners of this podcast, I think, should be aware of because Trump, as bad as he is, is is uh, uh, growing in a soil that uh, goes beyond uh, the, the United States and its bounds. And uh, in some ways, we're living in a, a broader era of these kind of ideas, and they probably will outlast the man even if he goes down in November. So recommended book. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Um, mine, um, when we first started this uh, segment in the beginning of this life of this podcast, it was um, something from the other side that you agreed with. And we, we've gotten away from that mostly because it's kind, it's really hard to come up with one of those every week, or I found it hard. Um, but, um, but I have one this week. Um, I, this is something that appeared in the New Republic, which I frequently disagree with most of the time, I would say. But I found this uh, this essay pretty interesting. It was called um, "Why the Pandemic Is Driving Conservative Intellectuals Mad." It was written by Matthew Sitman, and he talks about a number of conservative intellectuals who have been spinning these stories about the hard bitten working class people out there who just you know are sort of rugged individualists and don't like these prissy intellectual. Uh, citified folks uh, interfering with their freedom. And he points out that this is mostly a figment of their imaginations. They don't provide any evidence of this. And he writes um, that uh, the, the uh, surveys show there, there aren't meaningful divisions along class or education lines on these questions. Uh, and he says, uh, there certainly isn't a rugged, death-defying, God-fearing working class straining against the complacency of prissy white-collar overlords. Imagining that's the case, however, is less challenging than talking about what actually will help workers. Hazard pay, paycheck protections, paid medical leave, proper safety equipment, and robust testing. And I think that is a fair point. Well said. Uh, that is it for us for this week. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Patrick, so much for joining us. And uh, for the rest of you, as I, for our wonderful listeners, um, please rate and review us if you get the chance. And you know, you don't, you're, you're home, you can just click on the rating sections of your computer that if you, if you wouldn't mind that we'd appreciate it very, very much. And um, you can send any comments uh, to me via email, um, which you will find on my Twitter uh, information page. And uh, so have a good week, everyone. And uh, until next week. 